The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with stocks trying for a fourth straight day of gains on the back of yesterday's better-than-expected inflation report. Investors bracing for yet another key data point this morning. And not so fast. Disney's board of directors extending the contract of CEO Bob Iger for two more years. Shares are popping on that news. And the federal government not giving up on its fight to block Microsoft's deal for Activision Blizzard, saying it will appeal Tuesday's landmark ruling. Plus, we lay out the game plan for second quarter earnings as Delta and the big banks, they get prepared to report. And then later in the show, reports that Tesla may be breaking into a new and a very lucrative market. It is July the 13th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Thank you for starting your day with us. Let's kick off the hour with the check on U.S. stock futures with the major averages coming off three days of gains and the S&P set to open up at its highest level since April of 2022. The Nasdaq also hitting a 52-week high yesterday. Taking a look at futures, you can see it is green across the board. We're seeing the Nasdaq doing the best, continuing that hot streak up over a half a percent. We're also looking at the bond market. There we're seeing moves to the downside. Let's start with the benchmark 10-year. 3.82 right now as we speak. you got to remember, it had a high of 4.09 last week. We're also seeing big downside moves on the two-year note as well, falling well below that 5% mark. We're also watching the energy market. Oil coming off its highest settle since April. The IEA out with fresh comments this morning, reducing its oil demand growth estimates for this year by 220,000 barrels per day, citing persistent macroeconomic headwinds. But checking prices here. We are still seeing uh, oil in the green. WTI crude almost at 76 bucks a barrel, fractionally higher. Brent crude above 80 bucks a barrel, also fractionally higher. Not much moving in natural gas. All right, stocks around the world following Wall Street's lead higher. Our Arabile Gumade is standing by in our London newsroom with that trade. Arabile, hard to not see all the green over there. Yeah, look, if, if there's one thing we're looking at, it's all the green and where it comes from, right? It does follow on, of course, from the positivity we got in the market yesterday after those CPI numbers as well in the U.S., uh, where things were cooler than anticipated is the word we're certainly using. But positivity across the board, the FTSE 100, two-tenths of a percent stronger, two and a half percent to the good as well then for the week, which does bode well for the FTSE 100. But we did get GDP numbers out today, 0.1% downturn in the UK GDP number. So inflation continuing to bite, of course, still managing to have the highest inflation rate of any major economy, really. So they'll try to do a lot more work as the Bank of England when it comes to that side uh, as well. Then a lot of the other indices also moving a lot higher. Then uh, on the up, the tech stocks more than 1% to the good. Basic resources also managing uh, some sense of gains there, too. On the Asian market, well, the picture here has actually actually been about trade numbers which have come out uh, across the day here when it comes to China. They reported uh, a trade surplus of around 70.62 billion U.S. dollars. 
That is higher than last month's figure, or May's figure, should we say, of 65.81 uh, trillion, uh, billion, should I say, dollars there. But it is lower than what was anticipated of 74 billion uh, U.S. dollars. So it does show you that things aren't necessarily climbing as high as they would have liked them to. Both exports and imports dropping off exports more than 12 percent lower. Across the board, though, we are seeing some positive numbers for the Asian trade. All right. Arabile Goumede, live in our London newsroom. Arabile, great to see you as always. Thank you very much. All right, turn our attention back to the U.S. and Wall Street. The S&P 500 closing at a 15-month high yesterday on the back of that quarter-than-expected inflation number. But one market watcher says don't get too excited because a recession is still likely. In a note from Oxford Economics, lead U.S. analyst John Canavan says bullish sentiments about the Fed's chances of creating a soft landing while curbing inflation through higher rates, they could boost the S&P 500 back above 4,500. However, and there's always a but, he believes a slowdown starting later this year will keep the index from returning to its 2022 record high, and markets will likely lose ground in the second half and struggle for gains in the years ahead. Let's bring in Anika Gupta, equity and commodity strategist at Wisdom Tree. Anika, good morning. It's great to see you. Very good morning. All right, Thanks so, for having me. So kind of a nuanced take there. So do you agree with this thesis from Oxford Economics, at least about the second half of the year, that we could see a rally. And I also want to ask you, is tech going to still maintain leadership? I know you're looking at the NASDAQ 100 and the fact that it's actually trading below its 200-day moving average. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, obviously, many investors out there are, are contesting that, you know, the, the NASDAQ is overvalued at this current point in time. But if you really look back into history, what you do see is at the peak of the dot-com bubble, the NASDAQ is trading uh, well above its 200-day average. And today, it's still trading 16% its 200-day average. So I think we're at this pivotal point where earnings will be a very important deciding factor uh, for whether we see an extension in this rally. And I think what investors are going to be really uh, looking through in these uh, earnings figures is if they can um, you know, continue to produce these much higher revenue numbers. What we're seeing in the pure play AI um, uh, you know, uh, figures for earnings this season is we're, we're still seeing an average earnings of 9%, which is well above the average for the S&P 500. And, you know, in this okay. growth scarce environment uh, where we are entering a slowdown, investors are very hungry for growth opportunities. And hence, if we do see that play out, that will, uh, you know, provide that extension in the rally. All right. So this is Worldwide Exchange. We talk a lot about the U.S., but we also do look at international markets. You're looking at Japan. Where are you seeing the opportunities there? Well, you know, we've been looking at Japan over the last six months, and we, we have been quite bullish on Japan. But we were taken aback when the Tokyo Stock Exchange actually came in and introduced, uh, you know, a complete overhaul on their co corporate governance rules. Uh, you know, they've written out to more than 3,000 companies telling them that you need to, uh, you know, come out with a plan, uh, bring okay. up your price to book ratio. Um, and if you don't, you, you know, you actually have the chance of being kicked out. So we are seeing companies respond to that. We are seeing, uh, you know, that, that well-known myth that Japanese uh, corporates do not compensate investors being dispelled. Uh, we're seeing dividend ratios rise. We're seeing overall right. payout ratios, while they're falling in the U.S. and Europe, they're actually increasing in Japan. And that's okay. happened steadily over the last An six months. Anika, one other thing I want to ask you about commodities. So we've had an another guest come on in recent weeks and say we're in a commodity super cycle. We're also seeing some big weather patterns and big weather, weather events coming up. 
How does that impact the commodity market, especially the agricultural commodity market? Yeah, that's a great uh, point. Uh, you know, we're currently uh, likely to experience uh, an El Nino weather cycle, and this is likely to follow after three years of a La Nina cycle. So what that means is, um, you know, the eastern parts of the globe uh, are likely to experience um, uh, lower than expected rainfall, whereas, uh, you know, the, the western uh, hemisphere, the southwestern hemisphere is likely to see above average rainfall. So what that, what that essentially tells you is you're likely to see drier conditions in the U.S., which we're, which we're seeing right now, which tends to be quite uh, price positive for uh, grains such as soybean, corn, and wheat. Okay. Yet at the same, at the same time, uh, you know, in, in, in countries like India, you're likely to see less rainfall, and that could exert uh, pressure right. on uh, soft commodity prices. Right. Well, the El Nino impact, something we'll have to continue to watch. Anika Gupta, it is great to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, turning now to a developing story in the U.S. antitrust watchdogs not taking no for an answer. Our Pippa Stevens is here with that story and more. Pippa. That's right, Frank. Well, the Federal Trade Commission is not giving up on its fight to prevent Microsoft from closing its nearly $69 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard. The agency filing a notice in court late yesterday that it intends to appeal Tuesday's ruling by a federal judge in California greenlighting Microsoft's bid for the video game publisher. In response, Microsoft president and vice chair Brad Smith said, quote, we're disappointed that the FTC is continuing to pursue what has become a demonstrably weak case, and we will oppose further efforts to delay the ability to move forward. Now, this follows comments from Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick to CNBC's own Julia Borston yesterday that he would be surprised by any appeal. I can't imagine the Ninth Circuit would grant the stay. Um, you never know, but I would think that would be highly unlikely, and it, it just wouldn't be productive. Looking at shares of Microsoft and Activision Blizzard in the pre-market, Microsoft up about six-tenths of a percent, with Activision Blizzard down about a third of one percent. All right, Pippa, thank you very much. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first... What two extra years of Bob Iger means for Disney and its post-Bob Chapek turnaround plans. Plus, we lay out the roadblocks ahead for what's been a banner year for transport stocks. Then later in the show, getting set for another inflation report, we ask our expert panel if the Fed has already done enough. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Disney's board of directors voting unanimously to extend CEO Bob Iger's contract until the end of 2026. That adds two years to what was intended to be a short-term stay at the media giant. Iger now has more time to implement his turnaround plans and to search for his successor. We're taking a look at shares of Disney this morning, up over 1%. And joining me now is CNBC.com media reporter Alex Sherman. Alex, always great to see you. Good morning. Hey, Frank. Happy to be here. All right, so Alex, you contributed to the great story we have on CNBC.com, written by Sarah Witten. We're just really breaking this all down. What we see here, it appears to be a bit of a pattern with Bob Iger. What did you make of this announcement? I will give you three takes. It's a lot for this this early in the morning, but but I'll see if you guys can handle it. Uh, number one, Bob Iger really likes this job. He has postponed his retirement four different times, if you can believe that. 2013, 2014, two times in 2017. Uh, and, and now, I, I suppose, again here, so the fifth time, uh, in order to keep this Disney CEO job, the only time he didn't postpone his retirement, of course, is when he actually did walk away from the CEO job uh, and handed it over to, to Bob Chapek. He stuck around as chairman for another 22 months or so that time. Uh, and after he walked away as chairman at the end of 2021, he was back in the saddle and in November of 2022. So that's the first one. The second one is that the Disney board clearly thinks that Bob Iger is the right person to run Disney. Uh, he's had a long track record of success through multiple different uh, acquisitions. Think Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, the big one, of course, buying the majority of the Fox assets. That deal hasn't gone quite as well as the first three. Uh, but he knows all parts of Disney. He's been there since uh, ABC was taken over in the mid-90s, knows this company inside and out, kind of thought of as, as the gold standard of media CEOs. Last one uh, is that there may be no clear successor for Bob J. Penn. Uh, I'm not sure that there's an obvious person to take over for him right now, and that would be reason number three why he's kicked the can down the road yet again on name it, naming a successor. So there's a lot going on here, clearly. Um, there's been some issues with the parks, definitely issues with the streaming service, Disney Plus, and also, as you mentioned, the legacy TV business with both ABC and ESPN. So what's going on? Can Bob Iger actually fix these issues? And we were actually just showing the, the stock price since he returned as CEO. Stock's actually down a half a percent. What's the board seeing that investors are not seeing? So that is a great question. What, what the board has basically subtly tasked Bob Iger to do here is to re-strategize a company uh, and a company's plan that he put together. Bob Iger made the modern Disney, those acquisitions I've talked about, and also more recently in the past few years, redirecting the company towards streaming, Disney Plus and Hulu, and away from legacy media. Of course, Disney still owns all those legacy media assets. I'm talking about the ABC networks, the cable channels like Disney, FX, uh, Nat Geo, uh, and then ESPN, the big one. So Iger now may be in charge of trying to figure out how do we shed some of these assets? Do we need to spin off ESPN? Uh, we're, we're probably going to buy 33% of Hulu from our parent company Comcast in the coming months. What do we do with that when we're going to owe them $10 billion or so and we already have this huge debt payment that we have to pay off from when we spent tens of billions of dollars to buy the Fox right. assets. So there's a lot of work he needs to do on all of the decisions he made. 
All right, so a lot to break down there. Uh, we're going to probably get some of those answers. Be sure to catch CNBC's exclusive interview with Bob Iger coming up at 8 a.m. Eastern. Alex, while we have you, um, 8 a.m. Eastern today, our, our David Faber is going to sit down with Bob Iger. So while we have you, we want to get a, your take on developing story this morning as the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, they say talks with studios. They have officially broken down that union now recommending its members vote to strike possibly as soon as today. How does that impact Disney? Look, the job of CEO of Disney is obviously a job that people love. Bob Iger now is going to be in this job who knows how long. Before him, Michael Eisner was in the job for 20-plus years. Uh, that said, this is not an easy time for media. And the, 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 the strike is yet another example of that. As, as the business shifts to streaming first, the writers and the actors, who are now both on strike, want to get paid in a more commensurate way uh, for for people that are overwhelmingly now viewing their work at home on a streaming service, and the money and the contracts haven't caught up yet. They're still designed for an old world where theatrical is the main way that these actors are paid, even though millions and millions and millions of people around the world are now watching their stuff on streaming instead. So that's what these strikes right. are all about. The end game may hurt the media companies even more, and you can add that to the list of all of the different things that Bob Iger is going to need have okay. to think about as he again tries to reorient Disney for the next decade and beyond. All right, this story is still unfolding. Endgame, oddly enough, one of its big successes with the Avengers franchise. Alex Sherman, it's always great to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks, All right, coming Tony. up here on Worldwide Exchange, reports Tesla may be breaking into a new and a very lucrative market. We have the full story after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Take a look at the futures right now. We're seeing the NASDAQ move higher, all three indices in the green at this hour. Right now, again, very early, it looks like the Dow Jones would open up about 100 points higher. Also taking a look at Treasuries right now. After yesterday's cooler-than-expected CPI report, we saw Treasury yields decline very sharply. Right now, the 10-year at 3.81. The two-year, seeing one of the biggest moves from last week down to 4.64, that decline in yields, something we continue to watch. It's impact not only on tech, but on the energy markets. We're seeing oil pop up a bit after those yields fell lower. And right now we're looking at the oil markets. Oil for both WTI and Brent crude, both of them up fractionally. Same story for natural gas moves to the upside, green across the board when it comes there. All right, time now for your global briefing. A check on the headlines, dominating conversations on trading desks, all around the world, we begin with China facing fresh economic pressures. New data revealing both imports and exports shrank faster than expected last month. Exports actually saw their biggest decline in more than three years. Some Chinese tech companies seeing solid pops in Hong Kong trading. This after China's premier met with senior executives from the country's leading sectors, leading companies in that sector. He emphasized the importance of tech companies in creating jobs and fostering innovation. And Tesla is reportedly in talks with India to set up a production facility. The Times of India reporting the EV maker has started talks with the Indian government for an investment proposal. 
All right, straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, Delta set to report earnings in just a few hours as we take a closer look at a rough few months for the airlines. We have a top-ranked industry analyst here to break down the earnings and much more. Much more Worldwide Exchange after this break. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we're just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Stocks looking to keep up the momentum with the S&P hovering at its highest level in more than a year. Futures are pointing to a higher open. Easing inflation, serving as one of the main drivers of the bullish market action. We're going to lay out what it could mean for the Fed and its rate hike strategy. And investors also gearing up for the start of earnings season. Big banks, airlines, and consumer-focused companies, they are all in the docket. We're going to tee up what you need to watch in what could be a tough quarter. It is Thursday, July the 13th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Thank you for starting your day with us. Let's pick up a half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures with stocks coming off with three days of gains. And the S&P set to open up at its highest level since April of 2022. NASDAQ also coming off a 52-week high. Right now, we're seeing green across the board. The NASDAQ's doing the best, up almost three quarters of a percent. The Dow looks like it would open up right around 100 points higher at this hour. Uh, the S&P also moving higher in the pre-market. We're also looking at the bond market. That's where we're seeing a different kind of action. Yields moving to the downside. The benchmark tenure at 3.82. Last week, it hit a high of 4.09, so a big decline there. Also seeing a big downside move when it comes to the two-year note. All right, investors, they continue to digest yesterday's June consumer price index that led to that decline in yields. The big questions now, what is the softer-than-expected report and the lowest read since March of 2021? What does that mean for the Fed? Also, has the central bank already done enough to cool inflation? And as if yesterday, as if it wasn't enough, we're also waiting on the latest producer price index that's out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. Joining me now is Sarah House, Wells Fargo Managing Director and Senior Economist. Also with me, Thomas Phillipson, former acting chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump and currently a Daniel Levin Professor of Public Policy Emeritus at the University of Chicago. Good morning to both of you. So I just want to toss out that question, Sarah, I'm going to ask you to go first. What we saw yesterday, what does that mean about the Fed's path moving forward? What does that mean about the economy? And also, what do you think that means for investors in the markets? Sure. So I think in terms of the Fed's path, so I think we're still looking at a July rate hike as our as our base case. So the Fed telegraphed this pretty well. I think this was also just part of that brokered compromise between that June pause. And so I don't think that even the softness that we saw yesterday is, is enough to really convince the Fed that they have quite done enough. I think they want to make sure that we see that downshift in inflation that we saw in yesterday's core maintained. So I think we still go for July, but I think it does suggest that that's likely to be the last hike this cycle, because I do think that we can see those roughly 0.2% monthly increases in the core CPI be sustained over the next few months. Thomas, same question for you. Yeah, I think that the markets are basically, the forward markets are indicating a 25-point rise next time, but then a zero, it's growing at zero after yesterday, actually, uh, after the data came out yesterday. I think the big issue for the Fed is the core that is still pretty persistent. It came down a little bit yesterday, but the big sort of uh, overhanging problem for the Fed is housing, which is the biggest component of of core CPI, 40%, but it's also the worst measures. And it appears that rate hikes are essentially inflationary in that sector, which might seem strange, but we have 
housing prices going up in case Schiller, and we have construction booming with rate hikes currently taking place. And I think one explanation for that is that the supply of housing has gone down with the rate hikes. People are sitting, 60% of market are sitting on mortgages financed during COVID with very low rates, so no one wants to move. And, and, and existing home sales is about 90% of a new sales of homes. So there's a huge supply reduction in the housing market, which has led to two things. One is prices are increasing as opposed to decreasing with rate hikes, and construction is up to make up for that lack of existing homes being sold. Okay. Thomas, I want to stick with you for a minute. Um, Are we at risk with one or maybe even two more hikes of creating a situation where the Fed overshoots its 2% target and we create a deflationary environment? Yes and no. Again, like I said, the housing component seems to be working in the opposite direction where rate hikes have, have now increased housing prices as opposed to decreasing them by cutting supply more than it's cutting demand, essentially. But it is a general fear here that that the Fed is overdoing it. And this recession would be kind of unique in recent recessions if if we actually get into one. It's not clear yet, but if we do, because the government is not going to step in with the House of Representatives basically going to resist too much of a stimulus here like we did during COVID. So it's going to be a pretty uh, interesting recession in terms of lack of government response to the recession. So, Sarah, are we is the Fed at least at risk of overshooting and creating what many people are fearing could be a deflationary environment? So I think that there that's certainly the risk that the Fed's perhaps overdone it or or will overdo it. And I think that's why you are seeing this debate heat up more amongst Fed officials that they may have done enough already. Um, In terms of whether we're going to be getting into a deflationary environment, I'm not so worried about that. I'm more worried about that while we do have a lot of disinflationary pressures in train right now, and we do think that we'll see some more market improvement over the rest of this year, that it's going to be a lot harder to get from, you know, roughly six and a half percent on core down to a little under five percent like we've seen since last September. Uh, We're not going to see that same pace of, of disinflation ahead. And, you know, as Thomas pointed out, we're already seeing um, some some rebounding and some firmness in the housing market. And so okay. I think that's going to suggest that we have in some ways less disinflationary tailwinds as we move out further into 2024. And you're not going to get inflation fully back to 2 percent in a timely and sustained manner. All right. So a lot of expectations for yesterday's CPI. We do have PPI today, but I want to ask you guys earnings season, including the big banks coming up tomorrow. Um, do you believe that has any impact on the Fed's decision in the meeting coming up just under two weeks from today, Thomas? Well, it should have because there is some stress in the banking sector, not as much as we predicted a couple of months ago. But I think the overriding concern is for the Fed is inflation. Uh, okay. That's kind of where they're looking. And the PCE is going to come, which is their favorite inflation me- measures coming out the Friday after their meeting. So this is kind of the last week we had yesterday on inflationary metrics before they go into their meeting. But I think the overriding concern is certainly inflation and not banking. Sarah, same question. Earnings season, does that have any impact on the Fed or is whatever we saw from CPI, is that going to guide their final decision? I think what you're seeing in terms of of some of the earnings, I think that's going to be secondary to what we're seeing in the Fed's primary mandates, inflation and and the labor market. So it'll be a piece. They'll be paying attention to it. But I think it's it's going to fall uh, secondary to to what we're seeing in those main actual economic data. All right. A big thank you, Sarah House and Thomas Thomas Phillipson. Great to have you both here. Thank you. 
All right, let's stick with earnings season. Several high-profile reports over the next two days, but this quarter's reports, they may offer a bit of a mixed picture. Our Bob Pisani has more. There's good news and bad news for earnings season. The good news is that the second quarter is likely to be the trough for earnings. That's because the outlook for the rest of the year is not nearly as dire as it was six months ago. So far, the soft landing scenario has been the correct scenario, one where inflation is slowly coming down, job growth moderates but still remains healthy, and corporate profits are stable and begin to improve. The bad news is that earnings are not the problem, it's valuations. The S&P 500 is 15 percent higher than it was was six months ago, but earnings expectations for the next 12 months are not dramatically higher. That means investors are paying a very high price for that future stream of earnings, and some may start pushing back against those high prices. That may mean that companies may not see much of a move up in their prices, even if they report a beat in earnings in the next few weeks. So there's other issues, of course. Now, one big one is revenues. Many companies are likely to report a much tougher time raising prices because consumers are going to likely start pushing back after a couple of years of big price increases. That could crimp profit margins if wage inflation remains high. Back to you, Frank. All right, our big thanks to our Bob Pisani. Let's stay on the earnings front and a major focus on tomorrow's results from some of the big banks. Analysts already saying this quarter it could be a very rough one for the sector. Our Leslie Picker joins us now with much more. Leslie, good morning. Hey, hey, Frank. Yeah, you're right. This is shaping up to be a pretty tough quarter, even for the largest banks. Bank executives have been guiding the market lower, and analysts have been slashing their earnings estimates left and right throughout the quarter. The street has taken down their Q2 projections for the big six by 20% on average from the estimates they had laid out at the start of the year. 20% on average lower revisions. That's due to rising funding costs. Banks essentially need to pay depositors more amid higher for longer rates. And loan growth is slowing. Those dynamics are crunching margins. And the environment for deals, both M&A and IPOs, has been abysmal. All of those headwinds, of course, come at a time where bank regulations are quickly changing and the direction of the economy is so uncertain. So banks are likely to hold on to their capital and put away more reserves to protect against those risks. Much of this is already priced into bank stocks, however, with valuations well below historical averages. KBW says, quote, this is what the trough looks like. So if that's true, any hints of green shoots from the reports and conference calls may generate renewed investor interest in the group. Uh, we'll see tomorrow when three of the big money center banks, that's J.P. Morgan, City, and Wells Fargo, report. And I'll be sitting down exclusively with City's CFO, Mark Mason, tomorrow afternoon. Frank. All right, Leslie, that'll definitely be a very interesting conversation. Our Leslie Picker talking to City CFO at 1 p.m. tomorrow. So I do want to also ask you, we've seen, had such a focus on regional banks. How is that going to make this quarter yeah. maybe different than previous quarters we've seen? Yeah, I mean, last quarter, it was all about the regionals. It was so much focus on what their deposits were doing. Were they flying out the door amid those those bank failures we saw earlier um, in the year? This quarter, there's going to be a little bit more attention paid to the bottom line, less about balance sheet, more on the bottom line. How much more are these regionals needing to pay their depositors to actually keep those deposits in-house? What does loan demand look like, and what is all of this meaning for the margins and for their their ability to essentially kind of keep trucking along in in this current environment. So I think the big question will be, I don't think there's as much of an existential, like deposits are flying out the door, 
oh my gosh, which, which bank is going to be next? I think you could see a little bit more stability on that front. And the focus is going to be more on kind of your traditional, what does EPS look like during the quarter? What happened with net income? All right, a lot to watch. Leslie Picker, I know you'll be all over it tomorrow. Thank you very much for being here. Well, if banks weren't enough, we get quarterly results from Delta in just under an hour, looking at shares of Delta up 1.5% in the pre-market. And that, those, that report is helping to kick off a string of reports from the airline industry. The figures come on the back of continued flight disruptions for airlines, with the most recent and happening right around the 4th of July holiday. I was caught up in it myself. But the airline stocks, they continue to fly higher despite that turbulence. For more, let's bring in Sheila Kayaglu, Jeffrey's Aerospace and Defense Analyst. Sheila, great to have you here. Thank you so much. All right, so people keep booking, the consumer keeps spending, but yesterday, Arsima Modi pointed out a really good point. Travel prices are actually declining if you look at yesterday's CPI. Um, are we going to see some of that softness in these upcoming reports? We don't think so, and here's two reasons why. Um, Delta had its recent analyst day in late June really harped upon the point that there's still about $300 billion in missing revenues from um, airline travel. Uh, it generally is 1.3% of GDP, and we're not there yet. So it's below historical norms. The second reason is when we look at pricing for airfares, it's about 15% above 2019 levels in 2023, and we expect that to be flat in 2024. Um, we, we think that despite demand, um, we think demand's going to stay strong, but capacity constraints, whether it's airline traffic disruptions or just the lack of Boeing and Airbus delivering their uh, delivery targets, is what's going to keep pricing momentum. Again, and again, consensus is for flat pricing. So there's opportunity okay. to the upside despite the CPI report. All right, let's look ahead to Delta. You have a buy rating, $60 price target. It's about a 20, 25% upside from where the stock's trading at right now. What's making Delta the only name in the big airlines that you have a buy on? The rest are holds. Uh, we, we, in general, we're incrementally more positive on the group. The group is trading at 4.5 times EBITDA right now. It's 12% below its 2019 levels. It trades at six times EBITDA. It's about a 60% discount to the market. So you really can't go wrong on valuation with the group. But obviously, the capacity issues are going to hit United, especially in late June because of their Northeast focus. We do like Delta aside from its airline premium offering for two other major reasons. One, they have a tech ops business, which does uh, engine repairs, and we value that business standalone at about $10 billion of enterprise value. And they have their SkyMiles Amex program, which they really harped on at their analyst day, and we value that at $30 billion. So combined, these two other businesses are about the market cap of Delta. So um, with that, you know, we, we think you're getting the airline for about free. Oh, interesting. Interesting take there. Um, just in general, what's the next inflection point for the airlines? We're kind of halfway through the summer travel season. When's the next time that we'll have some type of indication of just how uh, their traffic is going and also their pricing ability is going? So it, it, booking curves are shorter post-COVID. So we won't really glean into how much of September and October is booked, but obviously Q3 is typically it's seasonally weaker given leisure falls off and corporate it's stagnating at this 80 to 85% recovered mark. So we really won't get any data points until Q3 in our view or in, until September to see how the second half and 2024 is starting to shape up. But again, consensus really assumes a deceleration in pricing in the second half 
as well as costs, of course, as fuel has come off, and flat assumptions into 2024. So the setup is there. The valuation is low. So these stocks, if they're running operationally well, I have to caveat that, like Delta is, are set up pretty well. All right, certainly something to watch. Looking at Delta and United, both up more than 40% year-to-date. Sheila Kayaglu, great to see you as always. Thank you. And be sure to catch a CNBC exclusive interview with Delta CEO Ed Bastian. That's coming up today at 7.10 a.m. Eastern Time. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, your morning call sheet. And one fintech player taking a hit on a new rating call. We have much more Worldwide Exchange coming back in just a moment. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet. Morgan Stanley, that's where we begin, downgrading SoFi's rating to underweight, but boosting its price target to 7 bucks per share. It says the fintech company faces risk to revenue growth ahead, including rising credit losses. Looking at shares of SoFi this morning, down more than 4%. Another downgrade from J.P. Morgan on Carvana's rating, moving it from neutral to underweight. J.P.M. saying it believes Carvana's valuation has once again become disconnected materially from the fundamentals. Carvana shares down more than 2.5%. And might as well make it three. Barclays downgrading Coinbase's rating to underweight from equal weight. Barclays says, while it continues to believe Coinbase is likely a longer-term winner in the broader crypto ecosystem, the fundamentals remain challenged, according to the bank. Looking at shares of Coinbase this morning, down more than 1%. All right, now looking at the state of freight, Dow Transport's outperforming the market so far this year, rising nearly 19% compared to the S&P 500's 16% gain. Still, it has been a choppy run. You can see it in the chart. With a freight recession in the spring intensifying recession concerns for the broader economy, contracting global purchasing indexes, decreased spending on goods and excess inventories only adding to those concerns. Today, trucking, which makes up just about 75% of the transport market, has taken a step back from last year's all-time highs. Rates falling 20% or more year over year in the three key segments. We're talking general trucking, industrial or flatbed trucking, and refrigerated trucking used for perishables like food. But those rates, they are still double digits higher than their pre-pandemic levels. We are seeing a very similar story when it comes to rail shipping of containers. Those used to transport consumer goods, commodities, and raw materials. With Prime Day behind us and back-to-school holiday shopping ahead of us, what lies ahead for the state of freight in the second half of the year? Let's speak with Amit Marotra, Deutsche Bank Managing Director in Transports and Shipping. Amit, good morning. Great to see you as always. Frank, great to see you. Good morning. So we just laid out the rate picture right now. So first, what is your overall view on the supply chain and transports? Where do you see rates coming going from here? And how do labor issues, including with the Teamsters and port workers up in Canada now, how does that impact your view? Well, we're climbing out of a really, really big hole. Um, Demand for freight capacity in the months of April, May really had never been worse. We're talking about all-time lows exacerbated by, you know, a major inventory destock over the last 12 months. But now we're mostly through. I would say we're kind of well into the bottom of the ninth inning in terms of the inventory destock. So the bad news is things were never worse. The good news is things can't get much worse from here. And so we're seeing um, some green shoots. I would say that things are getting a little bit better in the uh, month of May and July. Um, But we need to see a lot more progress um, to to really start to see, start to say that, you know, we're just in a much better footing. But things aren't getting worse. We're getting a little bit better, but we have a long way to go. All right. With that in mind, give us your, your two top picks when it comes to the transport space. 
Well, I mean, so, so for us at Deutsche Bank, we've been highlighting this company, less than truckload company, Saya, for a really, really long time. Um, Saya is a less than truckload company that shares are up about 65% this year. Um, we think that that upside will continue, that outperformance will continue. The company earns about $12 per share uh, this year. We think that earnings power can more than double over the next three to four years. And we just think the company is doing a lot of the right stuff in terms of service and quality to allow for it to have pretty robust pricing power okay. over the next several years. Just to spell it out Another for the company, audience UPS. really quick, I just want to jump in for a second. I'm at, yeah. uh, less than truckload allows companies to put uh, different companies to put loads on the same truck. Truckload is when just one company has the whole truck. So Sai is your top pick in that space. I want to move on to something else that's really of interest to our viewers, the e-commerce and the parcel space. We talked about labor disruptions, UPS, uh, negotiating a contract with the Teamsters, how does that take uh, construct your view about the e-commerce parcel space for the second half of the year? Generally, it's between UPS and FedEx. Well, we've got about a couple weeks to go before the Teamsters contract with UPS expires. Um, they were really close. Both of the sides were really close a couple weeks ago, and then the talks broke down over some of the part-time wages. Uh, we at Deutsche Bank have done a ton of work on um, the issues at hand. We feel comfortable that a strike will be averted. We think the two sides are much closer than what the public rhetoric is uh, implying. And, you know, every day we wake up, we're hoping to see a deal getting done. So we're hopeful that before the end of July, we're going to get something done. But, you know, the, um, the rhetoric always gets a little bit tough at these uh, tail end of these negotiations. All right. I'm at Marucha. Great to see you as always. Thank you for your time and for your insight. Thanks. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today, Victoria Green lays out another busy trading day ahead and why she says a storm is brewing for the Q2 earnings season. Much more Worldwide Exchange after this break. All right, time now for what we call your WEX wrap-up. We start with Disney extending Bob Iger's contract into the end of 2026, adding two years to what was meant to be a short stay as CEO at the entertainment giant. Iger joins our David Faber exclusively at 8 a.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. The FTC says it is appealing a federal judge's decision to greenlight Microsoft's $69 billion bid for Activision Blizzard ahead of the deal's July 18th deadline. Meta Platforms is reportedly getting set to release a commercial version of its AI model, a move that should allow Meta to better compete with OpenAI and Google. That's according to the FT. The release is expected imminently. And shares of Viasa are sinking ahead of the open after the company disclosed that it most recently launched a satellite, suffered a malfunction that may, quote, materially impact its performance. Looking at shares, down more than 21%. The SAG-AFTRA union uh, says its negotiators unanimously recommended a strike after labor talks with Hollywood Studios. They failed to, re to yield an agreement. The union says its national board would meet today to vote on a strike. And Kathy Wood's ARK Investment disclosing it sold nearly 21,000 shares of Tesla yesterday to the tune of $5.7 million. It marks the latest sale by Wood of the EV giant. All right, looking ahead, today's PPI read and the kickoff to earnings season says to provide some fresh fuel for the markets as they try to keep up with the wind streak. But your next guest says it could be stormy skies with Q2 results. Victoria Green is the founding partner and CIO at G-Squared Private Wealth, as well as a CNBC contributor. Vicky, always great to see you. Good morning, Frank. You know, Vicky, I kind of know you to be more optimistic. Stormy skies ahead. With that in mind, what's your WEX word of the day? 
And my next word of the wet day is lull. A lull is the calm before the storm. And that's what I feel like we're all looking at as we're entering earnings season here, as well as the second half of the year after this huge run up. We have a lot of macro clouds on the horizon we have to keep our eye on. And so I do. I feel right now we're in a little dinghy in, in the ocean, but we can see the, the dark clouds on the horizon. And it looks a little bit choppier as we go forward. All right. So you're seeing kind of choppy as we go forward. It's hard not to pay attention right now. The Nasdaq, the best performer in the pre-market, moving higher as we're doing the show. Um, we saw yields decline very sharply yesterday. Is today a day you would buy back into that trade? I think right now we're, we're we're letting some of our growth run, but I'm more I lean more towards selling the rip than buying the zip on the Nasdaq because it has been on a tear, and it is true bubbles can persist for longer than we think they can. But I do see this AI trade a little bit bubbly and frothy, so I'm a little bit more like Kathy Wood, starting to take some of those profits from some of those huge runups. But yeah, for right now it, it's risk on everything. There's there's no problems whatsoever. But the, the market's not pricing in any headwinds on the macro side. The market's pricing in everything's going to be perfect and great. Everybody's going to use AI to drive higher revenues. And I just think it's going to be a little bit harder for the revenues and the, the under the hood and the fundamentals to back up where some of these stocks are trading. So it's just, you know, fundamentals do matter. Sometimes in a bubble, they don't, you know, when they first start running up, everybody just t- trades the technicals, you know, but when you start to trade at 40, 50 times sales, it starts to get really expensive right. and something you should look at taking profits. All right, I want to come to your wheelhouse energy. The sector is still in the red year to date, but again, those lower yields actually giving oil a pop and and creating the expectation that demand can still be uh, possibly higher. Um, Would you buy into energy today? Do you believe that we bounced off a low when it comes to oil? I am a little constructive on some parts of the energy market. I like the services, the, the Schlumberger's and the Halliburton's. I'm a little wary on the integrated oils and the EMPs, and that's just because integrators are going to face uh, worse refining margins as well as natural gas was pretty tough. You know, you saw Exxon take that hit uh, earlier this month when they kind of pre-announced, hey, we're going to have about $4 billion less revenues. EMPs in the U.S. are also struggling. The Permian slowed down a little bit. Uh, you only have about 680 total oil and gas rigs now in the United States. But if you look international, especially at Schlumberger's, you are seeing more drilling activity. IEA did come out today saying, hey, we are cutting our forecast a little bit, 2.2 million barrels per day growth. Okay. But, you know, it's still a little bit slower growth. All right. So, Vic, you know, we're all about actionable moves for today. So yes or no, would you buy oil stocks today? And what are your other picks? Uh, yes, on Schlumberger and Halliburton on the services. Uh, I also like Pepsi. They report today that company, if they beat today, that's going to be 18 straight quarters of beats. Uh, I also like Netflix. I think their their password crackdown and ad supported tier. They're going to beat their 1.85 million subscriber. Uh, just got upgraded today by UBS. And then lastly, and nobody talks about them, I do love my IBM. They are the original uh, AI pioneers with Watson. They just released Watson X. I think you got to understand how critical this company can be and how ingrained they are with Fortune 500 companies to help them develop enterprise platforms for AI usage. All right, Victoria Green, always great to see you. Thank you for your time. Quick look at the Thanks, futures Frank. before we let you go right now. The Nasdaq doing the best, up over a half a percent. The Dow off of its highs. Looking right now, it would open up about 60 points higher. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk coming up next. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.